Hello and welcome to the Tribal Podcast. We believe that true deep learning occurs when three things happen. You must one, understand, two, remember, and three, deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. And this podcast covers the first part, understand. Complete this learning by getting the second and third part at mytribal.com. That's M-Y-T-R-I-B-E-L.com. So together, let's get the key takeaways from this book understood. Great leaders of no rules, uh, contrarian leadership principles to transform your team and business by Kevin Cruz is the focus of this episode. And again, like most books I have covered on this podcast, the name got me. I was like, no, oh, that's leaders have no rules or great leaders have no rules. That can't possibly be true, can it? So we decided to dive in and have a little look. And there are no rules. Okay, I'll, I'll give the author that. There are no rules um, specifically, but there are guidelines. And I think that's probably the, the difference. And he actually talks about um, having no rules. It's the, it's the third takeaway, if you like, from the book. Um, so Kevin Cruz is uh, obsessed with leadership. He's obsessed with um, how leaders do what they do, who are the best leaders, what makes them good leaders, um, what makes people fail, all that kind of stuff. So he has 10 key takeaways in this book. And what we'll do is, as always, we will take you through each of them. And um, there's there's a, there's a few I think are, meh, don't know if I agree with them or not, but sure, we'll see how we go. The first one, and I definitely agree with this one, is to close your open door policy. So what he means by this is that the trend sometimes in a company can be for the to, to flatten the organizational structure, right? The, the CEO sits with the programmers and, you know, we're all buddies together kind of thing, which is grand. But if you're the CEO or you've got lots of uh, important work to do, and you are accessible by everyone at all times, it's a recipe for disaster. So he called it the got a, got a minute um, interruptions, the people who kind of do the two taps on the door and go, got a minute? They're, they're, like that's never ending. And he's he gives an example in the book of a time when he was trying to figure out the, the budgets for the, the coming year. And, you know, if you've ever done something like that, it's 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 quite a creative process really to kind of figure out, well, if you gave this much money over here and then that should result in, um, you know, being able to hire more salespeople here. And it can, it's, it's the definition really of, of deep work of that real kind of flow stage you need to get into, to be able to take those numbers from the Excel sheet or wherever you're doing it and visualize that, how that'll actually look in the real world. So he was telling the story in the book about how he kept, kind of getting into that flow state of trying to figure out okay well, we need more salespeople here which means there'll be need more marketing people blah 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 blah, and people just kept interrupting him and it was because he had this open door policy and he also by his own admission says he has a a, a chronic desire to be liked he wants just wants people to like him which we all have but you, you can't be a leader um if you if you're just trying to be liked all the time which is actually one of the one of the key takeaways as well which we'll get to so he says that the you should close your open door policy. And, and the, as soon as I read that, it reminded me of the book, which I just mentioned there a minute ago, Deep Work. 
by uh, Cal Newport wrote that. And Cal Newport has four rules for um, how why deep work matters, um, how to go about doing it, um, understanding that's valuable and so on. And essentially, it's it's it ties in perfectly with it dovetails, if you like to use a um, corporate speak. It dovetails perfectly with the first takeaway from this book, the close your open door policy. If you really want to get uh, important, uh, intricate work done, you cannot have people interrupting you all the time. It's the same thing that if you, it's something I'm totally guilty of is my emails are always open, right? So if I'm working on something and my email goes bing, I go straight to the email and, it, and it's ridiculous. So I, like I should close my email when I'm working on something that I really need to work on. And in fact, actually, while I'm recording the podcast, I close everything else on my screen, which is probably, that's the one time I really can't have interruptions, which is when I'm talking to you nice people. But so, yeah, in, in deep work, this is what he's talking about. If you need to get into that state of deep work, if you're working on a strategy, if you're working on something like, a, a you know, next year's budgets, you need you need to do, you need to work through that without interruption. So, one of the things then he kind of gives a few ideas as to why people might be resistant to closing that that open door policy to not being accessible at all times is that um, there can be fear of reprisals that, you know, uh, you weren't available when I needed to talk to you about something in particular. It becomes like a trust issue kind of thing. Or he also talks about um, leapfrogging the chain of command, which is let's say you're a middle manager and one of your direct reports has a problem, you're not available, so they leapfrog you and they go and talk to your manager. Well, now we have a problem where somebody isn't following the chain of command. And he talks a lot about the, um, the military and the Navy and those kind of um, people who absolutely must follow the chain of command when um, when in the heat of battle. So, which is, I mean, it's not the same thing as, as you know, working out your budgets, but it's the same principle, really, that a, a problem with not being available to people if you if you decide to close your open door policy is that you can have that kind of chaos where you know people are skipping around you and decisions are getting made when you're not in the room kind of thing but then he goes on to talk about why it might be a good idea to close your open door policy and um you know what to do instead and talks and this is a, a really big one which i've found before in in previous roles is that if you're available at all times and if you're the boss, the CEO, or the, um, you know, even just a manager of a team, your people, your direct reports could get to the point where they're incapable of making a decision because they clear every single thing with you. And he talks about something, there's an example in the book about somebody who was one of his direct reports and they'd had a meeting about some particular image they were going to use for some particular marketing campaign. He'd already cleared it. So like the changes that needed to be made, she went and made the changes, then came back and, and checked with him. And he's like, we we already did this. Like, I've, I've yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. And those kind of things are like just interruptions that are totally unnecessary. So these people who may be afraid to make decisions because you're available all the time to make the decision for them, and they're not doing it on purpose. They're not like they're being, um, you know, infantile about it or something, but they're if you're always there, to, it just takes the pressure off, just like they don't need to make that decision. So they'll ask you about everything. So his solution to this is to have scheduled hours is, um, you know, if you're going to come to me, these are the hours that you can come to me. You can come to me, you know, all day Thursday, all day Friday kind of thing, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you have to make an appointment. And he also says, if you're going to come to me with a problem, you have to have at least two or three solutions. And this is something I realized when 
back when I was reporting to, to people back in the day that I used to be that person when I was younger going, well, there's a problem with this particular thing here. Like, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, I, like I don't know. There's no point going to your manager and just making it their problem. They have to come to you with at least a couple of solutions, a couple of things they think could be wrong or what's causing it or what they think that you should do. Because sometimes there can be this idea that because you're the manager or the CEO or you know the, the, the senior management of some description that you have all the answers and you don't. You're just a bloke or a, a woman just like everybody else, right? Like, I, yeah, I'm in the senior position. I may have more information than you do, but I'm not any smarter. And you probably know more about it than I do. Like say, for example, if there's a customer service representative and there is, you know, a huge spike in tickets for one particular problem, the person at the coalface is the one who has the most information. I don't have the most information. You tell me what you think is causing this or, or when did this start happening or what changed on the website to allow this to happen. So you, you should, you, people need to come to you what they think, what they think the problem is, what they think the solution is going to be. And then you can make a, a make a decision. But he talks about scheduling time for um for having an open door, like where you might be doing lighter work that that you know isn't going to be impacted by interruptions. He also talks then about having regular one-to-ones with your teams. And there's some other book that we covered, and I can't think what it is now, of uh, where we talk about the one-to-ones, and they are not for the manager to find out what the individual is up to. It's for the individual to to air their grievances, to talk about what they need, to help them do their job. Your job as the manager is to, is to be in servitude to those people, is to is to be in service to them and allow them to do their job and to, to move whatever barriers might be in their way. That's your job as, as their manager, or as their CEO, as their senior leadership, is to help, is to remove roadblocks, essentially. So those one-to-ones that you set up for your team, if you're individuals on your team, they need to be um, regular, they need to be stuck to because it's not for you, it's for them. And um, it needs to be some, somewhere where they can have, you know, free reign to, to say whatever they want. They, if they want to cancel, that's fine. If they want to um, talk about three or four particular things, that's fine too. It's whatever they want. He also talks then about having town halls um, and deciding on a communication cadence, which is hugely important. Um, again, I've had role, roles where the, the top people would have like a Friday morning email, just kind of giving an update on everything that's happening in the, in the organization. So those things are really important. And actually, it's a, if it's on a Friday morning, I've, I always found that it was a nice kind of way into your into the into Friday, like kind of, kind of easing into the weekend, if you like, where it's almost like having a wander around the organization or the company to see what's going on, who did what this week, what's coming up. You just kind of get a feel for, for what's going on. And um, so the town halls then as well, I think, are hugely important, especially they don't have to be like, you know, weekly. They could be quarterly or monthly, but they... They should be regular enough that people expect them and they don't, they're not expecting terrible news at them. It's just like, here's an update on what we're up to. Here's what we're planning on doing. Um, but just decide on, a on your communication cadence. Um, so that's the first thing. It's close your open door policy. Um, but, but like I said, he still has rules. This like, <laughs> maybe it's a, the problem with semantics that I have here. The, the, the book is called Great Leaders Have No Rules. But there is a rule there. The rule is to... Um, you know, have your regular one-to-ones or decide in your communication cadence, that kind of thing. I'd call that a rule, but let's not split hairs. Second, um, not rule, let's call it the second thing that he says, the second uh, chapter, is to shut off your smartphone. And this comes back to, to deep work again, that Cal Newport book that we covered. 
we all know that the these algorithms, all they want to do is hold our attention all the time, just keep giving us dopamine hit after dopamine hit. And also cortisol hits, right, which is the stress hormone that you're afraid that if you don't check your phone, you could be missing out on the, the biggest news in the world or the, the biggest trend or something. That FOMO, right, which is, if you know what FOMO is, you're you're down with the kids. It's a fear of missing out. I, I think I knew that. I, I couldn't be confident if somebody said, what's FOMO? Fear of missing out is what it stands for. So people suffer from this FOMO, this 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 stress hormone gets released when they, and that's why they pick up their phone and unlock it like 50 or 60 times a day. So as a manager, as a leader, as a um, chief executive, as a, you know, uh, team leader, whatever it is that you're doing, you have to set the example, which is, I believe me, it's easier said than done. It's the same thing with kids, trying to show your kids that I don't need my phone on me all the time. And my wife and I, what we do is we, in the evenings, we take our phones and put them upstairs. So we're not, um, tempted to look at them it's so weird it's so weird how we're all addicted to our phones it's um there'll be interesting case studies in 10 or 20 years about um, addiction to devices anyway shut off your smartphone that's the second thing and one of the things he points out as well which is something you should definitely be aware of is that facebook twitter google well, maybe not google actually but twitter and facebook instagram they don't have a customer service number for you to ring because you're not the customer you're the product, right? If something is given to you for free, you are what's being sold. So you have to keep that in mind that you are not the customer, you're the product. So rule two, or I should say thing two, right? key takeaway two from the book is to shut off your smartphone. Rule three then is where he gets into this idea of having no rules, which again is kind of a, you know, every company needs governance, right? You need your policies and your procedures as much as you might roll your eyes at, you know, somebody who's brought in to write all the policies and procedures. From, I, I don't know, I, I think from your policies and your procedures comes your culture and your culture feeds into your policies and procedures then as, as well as that um, the two things are kind of interconnected or intertwined and, you, and you, you can't really have one without the other. But his idea here is to have no rules. And he tells a story about when he was working as a, um, I think he's working in sales for a particular company, or actually no, he was working as an executive. A company he had had founded got got acquired by another bigger company, and um, he was out on the road at some conference or whatever, and he was had to fill in his expense claim form, and there was some mismatch in what he claimed and what he got or something, and it was a difference of like two dollars or you know less than three dollars, I think it was, and just for the sake of it, he was just trying to um, what's the word? reconcile he's trying to reconcile he's got it right once he was trying to reconcile the 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 numbers that he submitted compared to the numbers that he got back from finance i think and he eventually he couldn't figure it out and eventually went back to to finance and said um what's the story with this i can't i don't don't know what it is just i don't even care like just submit the the expenses as they are to me whatever two dollars or three dollars and the guy in finance said, "Oh, yeah, we don't um, we don't pay for post-it notes. You claim for post-it notes, and we don't um, we don't reimburse for that." And he was like, "What is? How is that a rule? Like, how is? And this is like the bureaucracy. You know, it spins up out of nowhere in, in companies, and a lot of the time it can spin up because people are afraid to make decisions, which all comes down to a lack of trust across the organization. So, what he talks about in this book is that these kinds of rules." reduce accountability and it reduces a person's ability to make decisions and it's completely unmotivating to have to adhere 
to these stupid rules. Like if you ever, I know most um, government run departments, like especially like tax departments and stuff, if you try to fill out a form on one of their um, websites, it is, you know, you're, you're going to, you forget it. Like it's going to take you hours to try and figure out what exactly they're asking for, all the different abbreviations that they use. It's ridiculous, right? And it's, I, I've seen people, I know it's like that here in Ireland, and I know I've seen people on, on Twitter putting up screen grabs of, you know, these crazy forms that they have to fill out on, on um, you know, tax returns and all that kind of stuff. So his point here is that these kinds of rules, like these ridiculous rules, are what um, hinder growth and hinder creativity and hinder um, a, a person's ability to make a decision. And so it's really important to, to look across your company and see what are the rules that really drive people insane. And I saw this meme there a while ago. I think I saw it on Twitter. Um, something like, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something like every CEO should at least once a year apply for a job in their own company to see how maddening the uh, the application process is. And it's so true. If you've ever applied for a job and it has like one of those forms where um, you can upload your CV and it parses it out for you, but then you still have to fill it all out again. Yeah, it's like I, I remember back in the day applying for jobs and giving up on the application. And I, I would love to work here, but this if this is my introduction to this company, I just I can't do it. It's ridiculous. So for rule replacement, what he says you should do, and this is, um, <laughs> the first one is like after the horse is bolted kind of thing. The first thing you should do is hire good people. Now, if you've already hired people and they're not good people, <laughs> I don't know what you're supposed to do there, but he said you should hire good people. I suppose, you know, they'll filter out eventually if you if you start holding them accountable. Uh, second then is, is that is to hold people accountable for results. Um, so, for example, this is a really good idea. Um, I'm kind of taking the piss out of him a bit, but only because he seems like a very good bloke and is really into this, um, this, this leadership realm, I suppose. Great book, really well written is my point. But he says that you should hold people accountable for results. So rather than just... Um, not allowing people to buy post-its you should just set a budget per person uh, for the year or for the quarter or whatever and then reward people who come in under budget easy right then people can just spend it on whatever they want right the third thing then he says is to give guidelines and he talks about there was one example of somebody in his company i think and he realized he had too many rules it was something like a guy tried to book a hotel room and the maximum was like $250, say, that, that, that he was permitted to, to spend per night. Um, and this was like $280, so he couldn't stay there. So he drove an extra hour and a half and then claimed, you know, $100 on petrol or whatever, or diesel or gas, and, um, you know, claimed for that instead. So he, did, he said, this is just insane. Like, that, like, it totally removes a person's ability to make a grown-up decision. So that's what he says, is you should give guidelines. If somebody... You know, there's a hotel that's 200, the guideline might be, you know, spend $250 on a hotel room. If you see one for 265 or 280 and there's nowhere else around to stay, well, then stay there. Don't be ridiculous. That's, you know, and obviously the point then is that if that continues to happen and that starts to creep up, then you have the conversation with somebody and you should have standards and values instead of rules. So he talks about a company that a, one of those, um, Turnaround CEOs was brought in. You know, his company was failing and was, you know, had three months of, of runway left of, of revenue or of um, yeah, revenue. And he talks about how I think they were a removals company or something like that. And everyone was fighting with everybody. Nobody was, you know, everyone was giving everyone else the cold shoulder or else they were screaming 
uh, and roaring at each other um, in the offices and, and um, on the trucks and stuff. And what this CEO did, I think she went and she she showed everybody the numbers. She showed everybody that um, what it costs if you forget to to pick up the removal blankets. They, you know, they're you know moving um, furniture and stuff. They're covered with blankets to keep dust off and keep it getting scratched and stuff. And they realized then that you know if you don't if you don't pick up that removal blanket and you leave it, you know, at one of the warehouses that you're delivering stuff to or something, then that costs us this much money. And she was able to show everyone, you know, where we make our money, that there isn't millions and millions of, 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 of dollars of profit coming into the company, that it's, um, you know, it was quite a tight margin, I think, in the business. And once everyone understood then, and actually what they did as well, and he tells this, he continues his story in the book, that they educated people on, on sh- they showed them all the numbers, and then educated them, like they created a course for them. They educated them on how to interpret the numbers so that they could be empowered. So when they were out, you know, doing their deliveries or doing their removals, that they understood that they were part of this team, part of this community. And um, drastically, obviously, you know, obviously drastically turned around the, the, the company and they, they were able to, um, um, you know, make a profit and, and kind of grow from there. But the idea is that if you're, if you're going to all the time have rules, then... It, you're you're kind of hemming people in and it's just creating more red tape and it's really really unmotivating if you're having to follow a rule that is clearly a stupid rule and if people above you are saying oh, that's the rule we've got to follow the rule the rules are the rules you should give guidelines and you should have standards and values and you know you have to live the values as this leader um instead of having these rules that um, people have to live by so <laughs> i would imagine there's probably people listening to this going yeah I wonder what rules do we have there might even be rules i'm not even aware of that uh are stupid so go and ask people have one-to-ones pick people at random and um, if especially if you've got a, a, a big company pick people at random and say what's the worst thing that annoys you about your job what's the thing that makes you roll your eyes and then you'll see you'll actually see two things you might get a couple of good answers out of that but you'll also see is trust an issue is pe- are people going to think this is a trap <laughs> so good luck at that let me know how it goes the next one then the next not rule is um the next key takeaway is be likable and not liked um as soon as I read this, I started thinking about David Brent or um, uh, is it Michael Scott, I think, is the, is the American version of in, in The Office, where all they wanted was to be liked. And because they wanted to be liked all the time, they were completely inefficient and uh, useless, essentially, as managers or as leaders. They weren't leaders at all. All they cared about was being chilled out entertainers, to, to quote David Brent. So he talks about if you're all the time trying to be liked by people, um, it can delay decision making, which is absolutely not ideal. I'm sure this isn't news to anyone that, that making no decision is work is worse than making the wrong decision because if you make the wrong decision, at least you know then it's the wrong decision. You can you can back out of it in most most circumstances. But making no decision can be very frustrating for the people who are waiting on it. And he tells a story about um, Jerry Yang, who was one of the founders of Yahoo, and for you know. The longest time they couldn't decide if they were a tech company or a media company and because they couldn't decide they were just falling between two stools and um, he also wouldn't sell the company i think at one stage because he was worried about what it would do to the to the staff will people be let go and because of that then you know everyone knows what's happened actually i say everyone knows what's happened to yahoo there could be people listening to this um, looking at our demographics who've never heard of Yahoo, um, they used to be uh, a rival to, to Google. Is that, is that a fair comment when they arrival? I think they had more traffic at one stage. So if you're all the time, and actually I should say that guy, Jerry Yang, he was more interested in, in, in being liked 
than making decisions. Your job isn't to be liked. You're not there to make friends, or at least you shouldn't be there to make friends. You're there to be on a mission, right? For for want of a better word. Um it also means as well that if you're if you're all the time trying to be liked, you're probably not willing to have tough conversations with your direct reports or even your peers, people who um I think I think once everyone understands that we're not, you know, we're we're not a family. I always think it's weird when when companies say, "Oh, we're just one big happy family here." Yeah, are you? <laughs> I I always is it Netflix. I think say that we're we're not a family. We're you know a high performing sports team, and that's how I think of tribal as well. Is that we're of course we can all be friendly with each other and you know um, enjoy working together, and and that's great. But I, I have plenty of friends. I don't I don't need any more friends, and and. Um, I'm not, I didn't found tribal to, to make friends. So, uh, I, I, well, I've talked why I did it, but I was, I was going to go into my big rant about as to why I started tribal. We all know why I, I what I'm into with tribal, but, um, the, the whole point is that being, trying to just be liked is a recipe for disaster. And it's a, it's something that the author Kevin Cruz talks about himself that he has a this chronic desire to be liked, but I think even recognizing it is um, is half the battle. Like I, I'd be the same. Like I, of course, I want people to like me, but you kind of have to be cognizant of it and say, well, you know, I can't be liked all the time. I, I need to um, need to make these tough decisions and, and that kind of thing. So, but then the next key takeaway is to lead with love, and he mentioned something that. Um, I've I've read about and, and practiced myself a, a type of meditation called Mita, which is um, a, a Buddhism concept or idea, I suppose, of of loving kindness. And this idea of loving kindness is to is to wish well for people, is to understand that they exist, understand that they exist in three D, like that they aren't just the customer service people or the sales team people. You know that they are actual real life individuals full of complexities and full of contradictions, full of hopes and dreams with families and friends and, you know, goals and hobbies. And I think that's what he means by leading with love is to really embrace that idea that we're, and it can seem like it's a little bit of a contradiction to the last one to, you don't have to be liked and you need to lead with love. And it doesn't mean to be in love with somebody. It means to to recognize that these people do exist in the real world outside of your company so he talks then as well about the advice is usually to keep your distance. You know, that sometimes when people are the uh, the CEO or the senior team or whatever, that they stay out of the fantasy football leagues or they don't go for pints on a Friday or and they don't talk about their own family, those kinds of things. And that he says that's a mistake because um, it, you can come across then as just being aloof, which is a terrible idea as well, that you're you're unapproachable and uh, you're not leading with love. So, you know, this is, I I don't know if, I don't even know if this needs to be said, but maybe it does. It's in the book. So I'll I'll say it. He says that leading with fear works in the short term. I mean, I I would have thought we all got over this in the nineties that, you know, the command and control thing is, is, is long gone that we don't need to, um, there's information parity. Um, you have to understand that it's a collaborative, um, um, a collaborative effort 
so like I mean command and control leading with fear is it's a stupid idea really like if you're trying to just keep people afraid the whole time it's fucking stupid so what he says and at the end of this section is that you're not going to be liked by everyone right trying to be trying to be is a recipe for disaster uh I may have mentioned this in the last podcast that I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody has um a line going on how long it takes me to mention my kids but here I go again my eldest daughter is doing uh, gymnastics and she's really into it and she's quite good at it. But there's a girl in, in her class, in her group, that's better. And she's bendier, she can do more stuff, she can do the backflips and whatever. And it's like, it's the same kind of idea. That's just what reminded me of that there. You're, you're not going to be liked by everyone and there'll always be somebody better than it. There'll always be somebody worse, right? So it's that's what i tell my daughter when she goes to gymnastics you're not competing against anybody else you're competing against you last week right same thing with you're not going to be liked by everyone there's no point trying because if you do something you think makes you likable somebody else could be rolling their eyes behind your behind your back and going jesus what a try hard like that's and that's not what you want either so uh most of the time it's um if you have parameters as to what's acceptable you'll get along just fine if everyone knows what the what the crack is with um with what what we're all doing here that we're not a family you know i mean i'm open to correction on that really but you know we're i i would think a high performing sports team is a, is a better analogy for what a company is or what a team is that we're all here to solve an interesting problem with good people so that's the next one there what is that one two three four five number five is lead with love um, so understand I actually I should have just finished the point I started that section with about not talking about your family his his point is that you should talk about your family you should know people's names you should know their kids names and their spouses names and what's going on in their lives doesn't mean you have to be a counselor for the person but take an interest and recognize and, and uh, acknowledge that they are real life human people with them um, lives outside of their job uh, so next one then is to crowd your calendar not to um, clear your calendar, but to crowd your calendar. Manage your time down to the second. So rather than having 30-minute uh, meetings, have 15-minute meetings. Rather than having a meeting, having zero meetings, which would, which would be my uh, my advice. I, most meetings that you go to are go, go round and round and round and never really get anywhere. He also says to get rid of to-do lists, which I swear by a to-do list. So I, I don't know. I, I like ticking things off my to-do list and I don't get bogged down and if, if something didn't get done on my to-do list it just makes it onto the list for tomorrow so um but another thing he talks about as well with crowding your calendar is to allow think time it's a time to actually think about what happened in the meeting so if you do have a meeting and it goes well and there's you know an agenda and decisions are made and there's next steps and it's you know the the ideal meeting you probably don't want to go straight into your next meeting. And this is what he talks about Jeffrey Weiner from, from LinkedIn, who was the former CEO. I think he's executive chairman now or something. But he wouldn't schedule back-to-back-to-back meetings because what's the point? I'm just going from pillar to post then after a while. I don't know what, what was said in what meeting. So he would give himself 30 minutes after every meeting to take his own notes and to write down his own reflections and decide and just literally stare at the window and think, what happened in that meeting? What do we need to do next? And make sure it all makes sense to him. You have to have time to reflect on the meeting. Otherwise, what's the point? Um, so what he talks about is, as well as the the most creative hours or the hours that you're kind of probably going to get that deep work done or the hours after you wake up. And I know that's definitely true for me. Um, 
obviously I have to do school runs and all that in the, in the mornings. But once I once I get back, I always find that the hours between say nine and twelve in the morning are definitely the the ones that I get the most stuff done or I feel like I achieved the most, the most creative. So, and um, you have to think about your, your, he talks about the three C's actually, uh, create, collaborate and connect. So create is what he does first thing in the morning, say, say from nine till 12 and has lunch and then say from, from one until five or one till six, whatever time you're working to working until that's your collaborate time. That's when you have your meetings. So you try and set all your meetings in the afternoon where you're not trying to be creative. You're trying to figure things out and that the connect part then is you know friends and family is to is to really disconnect actually um, from from work and reconnect with your actual life so that you're emotionally recharged for the next day a huge thing i think is um this this idea of especially say somebody in my position an entrepreneur who's who's working on a startup this idea of working 18 hours a day i used to think that's what i was supposed to be doing and and what would happen to me, and I, I have done it, and I, I do still do it sometimes if I'm into something and um, <laughs> the wife allows it, um, I don't, I'm not needed for any children duty or something. If if I feel if I feel that coming, like I'm going to sit down here now at six o'clock in the evening and I'm, go- and I'm going to go until maybe nine or ten o'clock, having done a full day's work already, there's definitely something that happens to me around, I don't know, quarter to ten or ten o'clock in the evening where I think I'm working and then I realize I've been staring at the screen for 20 minutes and I've done nothing at all and I remember I used to try and fight that and go okay well let's knuckle down again let's get the next bit done your brain just has had enough it just <laughs> switches off it like I, I don't know maybe other people have ways around that I don't I, I find that I just need to do my day's work and if there's something in particular that's time sensitive I'll get it done in the evenings but generally generally I don't Gen- generally I, I'm and then as well, I also think about what does it actually mean to work? Like we're not in a, some people are in factories, but the majority of us are not working nine to five. Like we're not, you're not making widgets nine to five, unless you are making widgets, obviously. But most people are, are working at a laptop. You're not actually doing things nine to five, or are you? I don't know. And then I think about like when I go in, go back home then into the house and, you know, um, I'm whatever, watching Netflix or something. I'm still thinking about work. I'm still, I'm still, I take out my phone and I have like a, a Google Keep is where I take my notes. And I have ideas all night about things I should do and look this up and, and look for a link for that. And I make images and stuff for, for the for the podcast and stuff in the evening, sitting on the couch, I do it on my phone. It's, am I still working? I don't know. Like it's not the most taxing work, but I'm still tipping away. I'm still doing something. So crowd your calendar. I like the idea um, of create, collaborate and connect. Um, other people he talks about have a maker time and management time which is very good as well Um, so this is the time that I'm making stuff this is the time that I'm managing stuff and he actually has a quote as well from uh, Mark Cuban I don't know he's uh, he owns some he's on a basketball team I think in America and he's one of the people on on their version of Dragon's Den which is called Shark Tank and he so the author asked Mark Cuban about you know what would your advice be for for meetings and you know your calendar and stuff and his advice is don't take a meeting unless somebody is writing you a check, which is all well and good when you're a multi-billionaire like Mark Cuban, I'd say, but not really something we can all uh, do, I would think, on a day-to-day basis. And then there's also something else he finishes that section with where he says there was a, a study done, and um, I think it was thousands of people answered a study about meetings and 
um, how many they do a month. And so they so on average, there was 62 meetings a month, um, which were 30, 30 minutes or more. And 50% of them were a waste of time, according to the people in the meeting. So that's 31 hours a month a person wastes in meetings. We've all, like, people have seen all these things on, on LinkedIn and stuff that, you know, that that meeting should have been an email, right? Like, you know I mean? So think about how you're using your calendar and, and this whole idea of crowding your calendar is to is to work out how you'll use your time down to the second, which is a great idea. So 15-minute meetings rather than 30-minute meetings, I think, is a, is a good start. The next one, then, is to play favorites. So people are different, so treat them accordingly. And it gives a very good idea, uh, or very good uh, example, I should say, of, uh, of how to do it. Right, so he talks about how treating people equally or um, treating people accordingly, really. He says, imagine that there is uh, there's one person who is always on time for work. They're always, you know, there on time, logged in and whatever. And on one particular day, she has car trouble and she's late for work. And then compare that person to somebody who's just chronically late and couldn't give a shit that they're late all the time. Now, your rule might be that we start work at nine o'clock. So should you treat those two people equally? Is the rule, should you apply the rule to both people? And when, when you hear like that, you go, well, no, of course not. Well, like, I mean, that's what the policy is and that's what our procedure is and that's blah, blah. You should have favorites. You know, Mary is always on time. John, you're always late. So here's what's going to happen, right? Yeah, I do have favorites. He tells a story about um, how he did play favorites. No, sorry, it wasn't him that played favorites. It was somebody who was reporting to him he called it like upward mentoring or something. I can't remember the phrase, but it was somebody who was reporting to him was talking about how he played favorites. And the author, Kevin Cruz, was like, well, what, how does that work? Surely that, you know, how do you play? How is that fair? He'll say, it's not fair. But he said he had somebody on his team come into him and give out that he was playing favorites. And he explained, well, this person brings in way more money than you do. They, um, they're more efficient in how they do their work. And he explained all the reasons to this woman as to why he played favorites. And Kevin Cruz said then, well, what was her reaction to that? And he said, well, her reaction was, well, how do I become one of your favorites? Like that's, I mean, that gives somebody a goal to aim towards is to, is to think about how you're going to be one of the favorites. So actually another thing he says as well about the playing favorites is what it'll do and it'll, it'll show up really quickly is it'll get rid of the chronically negative people. And um, those people who Jordan Peterson that in we did his book recently as well, the, the 12 Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos, another great book. Uh, Jordan Peterson talks about people who are determined to screw up, just let them. And it's it ties into what he says here is that the chronically negative people who always complain will be found out because they won't get they'll never be one of the favorites. So get rid of them. So he says that if you have favorites, the way somebody should become your favorite or so the way somebody um, can can work their way up into getting that special treatment is if they have growth, recognition, and trust. They're the three things that, that'll, that'll ensure a person is engaged in their work. If there's opportunities for growth, both emotional and, you know, um, financially, whichever way you want to think about it in your own company, if they get recognition, right, which it can be a, a much more powerful motivator than money sometimes, and if they're trusted, so that idea of, of having no rules, give them a budget for their post-it notes for the year if that's what they want. Trust people to make decisions. So the next one then is he talks about uh, revealing everything, including salaries or even salaries, he says. Again, don't know if I agree totally with this one. I, I, I think it's a slippy slope into, um, you know, 
talk about what everybody's salary is. You, you could end up bogged down in conversations about fairness again, and, and, and that can get a bit wild, I would imagine. But what he says about this idea of revealing everything is, is um, he talks about Ray Dalio, who is a um, very successful investor, who runs his company like a meritocracy, the best idea wins. And he expects people who are very junior to him to offer him full and frank uh, feedback. And he talks about a meeting that Ray Dalio went to where he just clearly wasn't prepared for the meeting, had come from probably 10 other meetings and came into this meeting and it was a, it was, um, a mess because he wasn't ready for it. And straight away got an email from somebody really junior spelling out all the things that he did wrong in that meeting and um, how it wasted the, the, the junior person's time and so on. So, and Ray Dalio was delighted with that. He said, that's how it should be, is that they, like, you're right, I did show up to that meet completely unprepared and it won't happen again. So he says, the, the author, Kevin Cruz, said, you should, you should uh, reveal everything. Uh, and, and like I said earlier on with, the, with that turnaround CEO is to, is to teach people what they're looking at. If you're going to reveal all the numbers, there's no point showing them to somebody who has no idea what they're looking at. Teach them what it actually means. And what it does then is it provides them a stake in the outcome, so they they can see how their how their work becomes uh, how their work impacts the the bottom line essentially. So, so he talks then well as well about you know this idea of revealing salaries. He says it's not that crazy an idea if you think about any state run agencies. Uh, there's just a pay scale, and you're just depending on on the level you're at will determine your your pay. So you said that's what a company should do as well, is that there should be, if you're a developer, there should be maybe three or four different levels of developer. And then, and this is what each level gets paid. So if you know somebody is on a particular level, you know that's the kind of money they're on. And then the, then he said that the negotiation begins then, well, am I level two or level three? Uh, I think I'm doing the work of a level three person. And, and so people have something to aim at then as well. So um, I don't know, I just, I, it's not that I would be against revealing everybody's salaries. I just think, I just think it's a it's a rabbit hole to go down, and it would take a it would take a lot of work. It take a lot of communication, which is fine. But I don't know. I just I have reservations. I think people can be funny about money, so um. But it you know seems to be working for him, and and he, he says it feeds into this idea of um people want to get to the next level, and then they can understand what fairness actually is, and there's very defined roles then, and and who does what, but. I don't know. I just I, I have reservations about it. Next one then is uh, to show weakness. This is a again. This is something that I talk a lot about is showing vulnerability, and showing vulnerability or showing kindness even it's not a sign of weakness. Showing vul- vulnerability uh, builds trust because we're all human. The, the same idea of leading with love. This idea of understanding that people have families and hopes and dreams. All the things I mentioned earlier on, and, and so do you as their leader. Right, we're all in this together. Um, doesn't mean you have to be a doormat. Doesn't mean you have to break down crying every time somebody tells you something about their life. But be vulnerable. Talk about your mistakes. Um, and actually, it reminds me of a of another podcast we did, which is all about failure. And this is um, it's called Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. Syed, and um, that's how innovation comes about is through failure. Like anyone knows in business, you need to fail your way to success. You need to you need to allow for these failures to happen. And that's that's what the vulnerability comes in. If you show as a leader that you failed, and this is what I learned from it, then your team are going to be more willing to 
to take risks that you want them to take. So the idea is to be vulnerable because it builds trust. And um, I couldn't agree more with that one, I think. And the last one then is uh, leadership is not a choice. And all that really means is a whole chapter in this, but it really boils down to that you're always on. There's never a time where you decide you are a leader or are not a leader. Uh, you're always at it, right? You're always, there's always an opportunity to say good morning to somebody, to um, ask somebody what their barriers are that you, you can help get rid of. Um, you know, you're always at it. That's that's the bottom line. So I'll go through the the uh, the 10 not rules, the, the rules that we don't have, the, the 10 key takeaways from the book. First one is to close your open door policy. Um, so it allows you to get into the deep work. Second, shut off your smartphone. We all know that. It's a total distraction. We are the product, not the customer. Uh, have no rules, right? So set up guidelines and uh, standards and values for people rather than bogging them down with red tape and bureaucracy. Next one is to be likable, not liked. Don't be David Brent or Michael Scott. Um, your job isn't to be liked. Your job is to, uh, is to lead the way. Next one is to lead with love. Understand that people are complete individuals. They're they are three-dimensional, full of complexity and, con- and uh, hopes and dreams and all those things and goals and hobbies. Um, act accordingly. Next one is to crowd your calendar. Is uh, to get rid of to-do lists. Don't know if I agree with that. So crowd your calendar. Make sure your time, including thinking thinking time, is uh, is planned out down to the second, which is um, it's intense, I suppose, but... Uh, and then the three C's that he talks about there is uh, create, collaborate, and connect. Play favorites is the next one. If somebody has earned to be treated differently, earned the right to be treated differently, then you know let it happen. We're all grown ups. If you want to be treated differently, act like Bob over there, right? Bob is uh, smashing it with the sales, smashing it with the whatever, right? Um, next one then reveal everything, even salaries. Uh, let everybody know what's going on in the company and um, be an open book, I suppose, about uh, everything, you know, all the money that's coming in, the uh, dividends are getting paid out even. Um, if you think that's, if you think it's fair, then, you know, you should, you should have nothing to fear, supposedly. Uh, next one is to show weakness. Vulnerability builds trust. We're all human. Uh, talk about your failures. Talk about what you learn from the failures. Um, give people permission to fail. It builds trust. And the last one then is that leadership is not a choice. Yeah, you're always at it, right? It's you have to, you can't just switch it on and off like a like a tap or a faucet for my American friends. Uh, you're always on it. You're all you're, you're always a leader, right? You, it has to be who you are. And and I think probably the big thing is to build trust with people by being human. I think that's probably the, the ultimate message from this book. So the book is uh, great leaders have no rules. Contrarian leadership principles. So that's what they are. They're principles. They're not rules principles we'll go with that then contrarian leadership principles to transform your team and business okay until next time tell two people you know and actually tell two people you don't know about tribal that's t-r-i-b-e-l that's mytribal.com talk to you soon hey before you go just a quick message about tribal and what we're all about we believe that true learning happens when you understand remember and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. And this podcast just covered the first part. You now understand the key takeaways from this book. To help you remember them, we will send you three interactive summaries that accompany this episode to empower you to remember those key takeaways at the moment of truth. 
And then to really embed the knowledge from this episode, you can use the dedicated digital action log to set a time and a date to go out into the big bad world and deliberately practice the key takeaways. For all of this and for all of our podcast episodes, head over to mytribal.com. Until next time. Thank you.